Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book two of The Dark Tower, The Drawing of the Three, Final Shuffle. Let's start the show. Okay, well, we come to the end of the drawing of the three as our characters Roland, Eddie, and Susanna, the unification of Odetta and Detta, recover from their journey up the beach. Roland heals, Eddie and Roland bond over their adventures and discuss the tower, and Susanna takes Eddie's last name. What is next for our characters? King has some thoughts in the afterword, and we're going to discuss this final section and uh, do our recap of the book. Um, Quite a short section here, uh, not a whole lot going on, especially after all of the action in the pusher section, but a, a few key things I think we want to point out. Absolutely. And one of the things, Jay, you and I have talked about and just trying to figure out is the name of the book is The Drawing of the Three, and who do we think the three that were drawn are, and what does it mean to draw? What was ultimately that power that the man in black said Roland had, which was the ability to draw. Was it the ability to open the doors? Was it an ability to bring people into this world? And, and how does that all fit together? So what what thoughts do you have about that? And I think there's a couple hints in this section. Yeah, there, there's definitely quite a bit in the text here. But I think that my initial assumption was that to draw three meant that Roland would bring or add three people to his group. And because he was um, because the prediction was that he would find three doors and the title of the book is Drawing of the Three, that that meant that there was one person per door. And the first door, he meets Eddie and draws Eddie to his world. So, okay, so far so good. The pattern holds <laughs> up. And then we get to the second door and he brings Detta slash Odetta into his world. And okay, we're two for two. And then we get to the third door. And not only does he not draw Jack Mort into his world, like not even temporarily, he just occupies and controls Jack Mort's body and then allows Jack Mort to be killed by the, the subway train. So he doesn't draw three, does he? No. He goes through three doors, but he doesn't bring three different people in. So that's, I think, what sort of leads to your question, right? It's if he has three doors, but he doesn't bring three people is the title of the book misleading at best or just completely wrong? Trickery on the part of Stephen King. Yes, even at the level of the book title. But I, I, I don't think that it's trickery or, or incorrect. I think we're supposed to just see that this three is a little bit more complex. Or maybe the trickery is really in just the man in black and how he chooses to mince words. And he never says exactly what he means or purposely tells you things that could be interpreted a number of different ways just because he's that kind of jerk. Yep. And so I think where we really end up is that the three are, correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree, I think the three are are actually Detta, Odetta, and Susanna. I think that's the thing that Roland is doing in this book. Eddie was only ancillary. It was the three that um, was three people in one person. And so 
yes, he did draw Eddie, but he wasn't one of the three. I think the three that the Man in Black talked about, the three that are in the title, are those three personas in the one woman who eventually we come to know as Susanna Dean. And that's how we ended the last section with her saying, I am three women. I who was, I who had no right to be, but was, I am the woman who you have saved. So the Odetta, Detta, and then Suzanne. I think that that's one reading. And I'm not going to disagree with you because I do think that that's a valid reading and there's a lot in the text to support that. I think one other potential direction you could say is that Eddie is one, Odetta is two, and then through the third door, he's pulling Detta because you know when he comes through the door, that's when there's the actual physical split of Odetta and Detta on the beach. Right. And, and and the third that comes out of that is Susanna. So that might be another way of, of, of thinking about it, that he's able to draw Susanna out of it. I don't know if that's any more correct or not. I think it still leads us to the same place. Yeah, I kind of like that too. Yeah, you do sort of end up at the at the same finish line there, but I actually hadn't thought about that. He doesn't draw Jack Mort out of the third door. He draws Detta in a physical form right? with the magic of the door, yeah. of the third door. So the third door is where Detta becomes a physical being that ends up you know, fighting with Odetta. Um, they're intertwined like snakes, and, and that is what allows them to actually become the, the third person. So uh, I kind of like that. I think that might be even better. Or an even weirder out there, one is Eddie, two is the person who becomes Susanna Dean, and third is Roland healing himself, and that he's come out on the other side as a different person. Mm. Because they do end up with three at the end of the book. There are three characters in this group now. It is Roland and Eddie and Susanna. And so maybe the drawing of the three was just getting to the fact that there are three. I don't think that that is a correct way of looking at it, but it might yeah. be an all. The, the, I, I, three is such an important number, you know, not just, I mean, he has it in the book, but just sort of in the whole idea of numerology in the Western world, right? So we've got religiously the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the, you know, the whole triangle. I mean, it's a common trope to have three of things. Right. You know, the fact that we end up with three people at the end in this group seems seems to be important. Yeah, and the, the number three has mystical power, especially in fantasy tropes. So yeah. it's everywhere. So, Jay, you just mentioned a couple minutes ago about uh, how they're intertwined and there's sort of this whole snake piece um, with Odetta and Detta. I think there might be more you wanted to elaborate there on that that snake metaphor. Yeah, it seems like there are quite a few times when either the action that Detta is 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 taking, or maybe the plans she's making or thinking about, or um, or even just being compared to a snake. There are times when she's described as moving or sneaking through um, from one place to another, moving like silently like a snake. And there's certainly the moment when Detta and Odetta are physically grappling with one another that the word snake again comes up as, as like how they're writhing like snakes coiled around each other. And there's even um, uh, one of the Marvel comic covers has a drawing, like a double image of Odetta and Detta's face. And one is, is ha has light on it. The other is in, more in shadow. Mm. And the rest of the cover has like like a, a white or bright yellow colored 
python or boa constrictor coiled all around the outer edges of the page and then the snake head comes down and it bisects the two faces. Mm, interesting. So clearly the artist for at least the cover, if not the, that whole issue, certainly got the idea that there is something about Detta and Odetta, maybe their relationship to each other, maybe just their, their nature and how they connect to the world that is somewhat snake-like. Mm. And so I, I thought there, there were just so many... So many occurrences of snake imagery or symbolism that um, it stood out to me. Yeah, no, I think that that's uh, pretty interesting and worth going through if you do another read through. Because I know after you and I talked about it, I did notice a couple of those. I'm like, oh yeah, I I hadn't seen that at first, but once you once you're looking for it, you start to see it a little bit more. Yep. The majority of this chapter, much like the end of the Gunslinger, ends with a somewhat high-minded philosophical discussion. You know, in The Gunslinger, we end up with a palaver between the man in black and Roland before he continues his journey for the Dark Tower. And in the final shuffle section of the drawing of the three, it's Eddie and Roland who have a sort of philosophical discussion about what's next. And we've pointed out before that, you know, Eddie went from when he was first pulled into the beach or, or when he was first with Roland, he was sort of on board with the, okay, let's go look for the tower. And then as he was going through his drug withdrawals, you know, he turned and was like, you kidnapped me. I can't believe you took me here. All I want mm-hmm. to do is get back home. And when we get to the end of this section, Eddie's more on board with the quest. You know, he's got Susanna now with him to help him, but I think he's really bought into Roland's version of hey, here's what's going to happen and here's what we're going to do. And where the difference lays is Eddie wants to be sure that what he's doing makes a difference. And I think that that's where this conversation goes. You know, are you going to leave us behind? And more importantly, are you going to hurt Susanna? Because that's the person I love and I can't bear to see you just leave us as sort of use Kleenex and and not care for us. And there's this discussion about Will we find salvation? Will we be damned? Do you love us, et cetera? And I think that that's really the meat of this little section here. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say that Eddie is as enthusiastic about the tower as Roland. Uh, In fact, I don't think anybody ever is or could be. Um, (laughs) But I think Eddie is definitely a lot closer to that than he was at the beginning of this book. And similar to the idea that I talked about in a previous episode about how when it was just Roland and Eddie, it was much more common to have it the dynamic be Roland against Eddie or Eddie against Roland. But once the third person was there, then uh, then it became like, well, it was the Roland and Eddie show plus one. But as Eddie fell in love with Susanna, well, actually, he fell in love with Odetta, I guess. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, as he fell in love with Odetta, then it became like, the Eddie and Odetta show plus Roland. And suddenly Eddie had another person in the world to care about and to and who he found really important and who he could worry about. And then he in a way could finally or, or find a way to fall back into his old habits like he did with Henry. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much that that this is maybe an unhealthy thing, because I think his the relationship that Eddie had with his brother was very unhealthy. But Eddie even states, like, I'm the type of person who needs somebody to care about. I need somebody to need me. And so I will make sure that somebody needs me. Otherwise, uh, I don't feel complete. And so 
Roland, I don't think, was ever going to really be that person. He was temporarily when he was sick. Sure. But once Roland was healthy, Roland's like, I, I kind of don't really need you. You know, like, I don't need you to care for me. I don't need you to watch out for me in that way. Um, and maybe Susanna doesn't either. But I think Eddie can find a way or has found a way to have that other person in his life that is more important than he is to himself. Mm. And so that makes him feel whole and at home. And because of that, his defenses are redirected away from himself and onto Susanna. And that's where he, where he's like confronting Roland. He's like, I kind of figured out who you are and what you're capable of and what maybe some of the things I've seen you do and things you've told me about. Can you tell me that those things won't happen to us too? And Roland's like, I can't. I can't Sorry. make those promises. Nope. No, I've nope. always been honest with you and I'm not going to stop now. No, I can't make those guarantees. The one guarantee he can make, he says, we are going to fight, we are going to be hurt, and in the end, we will stand. So to your point of there is this higher purpose that we're going to be fighting yeah. for. Um, and I think, to your point, Eddie's not totally sold on it, but he's bought into it because not only has Roland saved Eddie's life, literally, mm -hmm. in the in the shootout, but Eddie also says, you saved more than my life, you saved my fucking soul. You know? Yeah. And Eddie held Roland and kissed his cheek. Um, to get back to your earlier point, though, when you said, you know, now that Roland is healed and doesn't really need Eddie anymore, it's interesting that you point that out because also in this section is when they kill a deer. So they've moved away from the beach and up into the grasslands mm -hmm. and they shoot a deer and, or Roland shoots the deer, but he realizes he's unable to clean and skin the deer. He, right. His dumb hand, you know, his... His one hand, his his dominant hand is missing the fingers and he's unable to cut. And it's Susanna who's able to help him, right? She's the one right. who reaches over and he can't even do it with his dumb hand. And whereas before Odetta was scared of Roland and didn't trust him, mm -hmm. Susanna's starting to buy in it. So you see these new relationships being formed between them with a lot different dynamics, I think. And he's learned to respect Roland and realizes I am not going to be able to care for you. Susanna's taken Eddie's last name, so they're almost married in in, in a way, Susanna and Eddie, um, and then yeah. Susanna and Roland trusting each other. Just th these dynamics are shifting, and I'm sure that's probably going to be a big piece of the next book. Yeah, at this point, through the course of this book, they are definitely all on the, the same page and on the same side. I, I think they're they're all moving in the same direction together, and they have had some very powerful mutual experiences to draw to bind them together they they've you know Eddie and and Roland had that side by side journey up the beach fighting off the lobstrosities fighting off Roland's sickness fighting off the mafia if they were mafia i don't know <laughs> the um, drug dealers for sure the drug dealers you know they went through that crucible together and came out forged as a team right and then the two of them journeyed through a second crucible to meet and figure out and ultimately help um Susanna come to be as, mm -hmm. as a as a whole person and Susanna herself went through that that journey with them and so by the time they all made their way past the third door and Susanna became uh Susanna Dean and Roland finally healed they were all bonded by these you know, really sharp experiences that most people don't ever encounter right. in, in normal life. So 
I think that there's still quite a bit of maybe, maybe not mistrust, but wariness on Susanna's part and even a little bit to on Eddie's part. But they also, I think, maybe understand Roland a bit. They've seen all the things he can do or could do and understand his motivations. Yep. So also, we talked a little bit about this, but you know, the first two doors were clearly labeled and matched the tarot cards, and the third one did not. It said the pusher and not death as we expected. And we talked about this at length in our last episode. But mm -hmm. when the man in black says the card is death, but not for you, Roland, it seems clear that Jack Mort is the one who dies, right? He's the one who ultimately is deceased as a, as a result of that. But is there a bigger question about who death is in this case? I mean, can we read it as, is Jack Mort death because he's caused so much pain? or is Roland death for causing the death of Jack Mort, and we know who the Lady of Shadows is. We know who the um, prisoner the is. prisoner is. I mean, is Roland death? Is that what we should? How we should interpret that? I think in a lot of ways, yes. Um, that sort of aligns with one of your interpretations of the drawing of the three. That if the total count of characters at the end of the book is three, and each one of them aligns to how one of the doors is marked. Actually, it doesn't quite work, but you know, if the the last tarot card is death, and then Roland is the third person in the group, then yeah, that works. But more than that, I think Roland even struggles with this and thinks it at one point in the book that what if I am death? I think he asked that of himself mm -hmm. because he has killed so many people, he has killed so many times, and even in this moment, in this you know, magic door scenario where he's controlling the body of Jack Mort in New York. He's trying to be like sort of a not evil guy. He's trying not to kill and he goes to great pains to not, not kill anybody when he's in New York except for Jack Mort. So I think he's, he's working towards some sort of, I don't know, maybe not redemption, but maybe not making things worse for himself. Right. But they talk about that. So Eddie says, the one thing my brother ever had to teach me was that he taught me, if you kill what you love, you're damned. And yeah. Roland says, I'm damned already, but perhaps even the damned may be saved. And that's when Eddie starts to get upset and says, are you going to get us all of us killed? Are you going to get her killed? You know, so there is this idea in Roland's head that he's already perhaps too far gone, that there's no hope for him not being damned, but perhaps there's something more he can do that, that he could seek some sort of salvation. So, um, you know, he very well could be death, but he could potentially overcome that as well. I think Roland is getting the idea. I'm not sure where it might be coming from for him yet, but he's getting the idea that he has walked a really fine line for a long time. And I think he's, he's worked pretty hard to maybe justify a lot of his actions that this is all in service of his quest for the tower. Mm. That is so much more important than anything because it's as important as everything that, you know, killing some people along the way, maybe being damned along the way is an acceptable sacrifice. But I think what he's coming to realize is that maybe if he is damned and he completes his quest and reaches the tower as a damned person, then he really can't be successful. Like maybe the door doesn't open if he's damned, if he's irredeemable, that he can't, he can walk right up to the, the door and of the tower and it won't open for him. So I think some intuition is telling him he needs to straighten this out. 
He needs mm. to find a way to maybe redeem himself if it's possible, if it's not too late. And maybe the key to that redemption is his new friends, you know, and, or, and I think he has some hope for that and recognition of that they could help him more in more ways than just healing his body or, or helping him live. There's a, I don't know, a spiritual part of it too, that, uh, that their connection uh, is that deep and could help him to achieve some form of redemption. And if there's one thing we know about Roland is he is very intuitive and his gut has served him well as far as making the right decisions at the right time. Yes. So the fact that he does have some insight and we are unaware of how he could potentially have gleaned this, um, that doesn't mean we should discount it because it has served him well in his journey so far along the way as he's made decisions. Absolutely. So we talked a lot in The Gunslinger about the different types of genre of book it is and how it moved from Western to fantasy to horror to... Back to Western again. Back to Western, little sci-fi thrown in and high-minded philosophical. This one is a lot more straightforward. I think that we have a lot of real-world type of stuff overlaid Mm -hmm. with this fantasy magic piece of these doors that are portals uh, to what looks to be something similar to our world back to Roland's world. And, you know, it's a fairly straightforward read. I think both you and I enjoyed it. We were able to read through it very quickly and understand what's going on and not have to put a lot of pieces together from that point. But, you know, the fantasy trope, I think, is big here um, and is probably going to guide us along the way for what I would imagine the rest of the series. Um, But this whole portal between worlds, I know, you know, we've probably moved beyond it for the moment, but we don't have to figure out exactly how the doors work, but we do know that they worked. And one of the things I think we wanted to talk about is just sort of how that fits into the sort of broader fantasy trope around that. So I know when I was younger, I was a huge fan of Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, Mm -hmm. the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which has a very specific way of walking through the back of the wardrobe and ending up in a fantasy world. Right. And one of our uh, fellow Dark Tower fans and uh, a YouTuber, Emily Kate, talked about this in, in a recent review of this book, where she talked about that the portal is a very common fantasy trope. And like you said, it's, it's in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a really important part of how that series works. But she talked about how in the typical way that a fantasy story works with a portal, it starts in the real world, our world, where there mm-hmm. is no magic except for the portal itself. And then somebody from, you know, a normal person from the real world goes through the portal and then they are in the fantasy world. And that's where anything is possible because it's a fantasy place. And usually something about the person being from the real world makes them special in the fantasy world. They have advantages that some of the other people who are already in the fantasy world don't have. Mm. And she pointed out something that gave me a lot of insight into how King structured this book. I think he used the standard portal trope in a fantasy, but because we're starting in the fantasy world, we're starting in Roland's world, and he goes through the portal to the real world, King has reversed the direction of the portal. And in doing so, he's also reversed some of the rules. So Roland is like this almost superhuman figure in this fantasy world. He's lightning fast with his guns and he can even reload them, you know, like can reload revolvers faster than people can even see his hands moving and stuff like that. But when he goes into the real world as like 
in Jack Mort's mind, he's at a huge disadvantage. He loses some of his magic, in a sense, when he goes into the real world. So thanks, Emily Kate, for pointing me in that direction and helping me to understand a little bit about what King did. I thought that was a very insightful. And it was really cool to just sort of look back on how this book is structured in those terms, compare that to how book one is structured with a mm. little bit of that mindset to see what King is really doing. Yeah. And certainly by the time he got to write book two, he was a much more mature and accomplished author. So he was willing to, and certainly aware of how genre works and what he could do to maybe put fresh new spins on things. And this clearly seems intentional uh, on his part. And he's like, let me see, let me see what I can play with. I, I, I know how to play the instrument. Let's see what happens if I turn it upside down. Yeah. No, I think that that is an astute observation and uh, an interesting way of looking at that portal back and forth between our world and Roland's. So we have some uh, more fun stuff that happens uh, in this section in this book. Um, you know, the one thing that shows up in here is the jawbone of the man in black, which I had sort of forgotten about until yeah. um, until Roland pu pulls it out. And I guess I forgot the first rule of playwriting by Anton Chekhov that, you know, if you show mm -hmm. a, if you show his jawbone in the first act, it must reappear and go off in the third act. So yes. it doesn't it doesn't quite go off yet, but it, it, Roland seems to put some great significance in it that the jawbone will help lead the way. And was it really in his back pocket the whole time? <laughs> I mean, a jawbone's a pretty big thing. I don't Can even you fit like... that in your back pocket and just like forget it's there. No, I mean, and I I've always pictured Roland is wearing like something similar to a pair of Levi's 501s sort of hip-hugging type of things. It, yeah, I, fairly snug around the buttocks. Yeah, it seems like it'd be very, you know, I don't even like wearing my wallet in my back pocket anymore. It's, you know, if I sit down, it hurts my <laughs> hurts my butt, puts my back out of alignment. I can only imagine putting a human jawbone in your back pocket and trying to sit down. What a bite in the ass that would be. And the original jawbone was even... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I like that delayed. It takes about five seconds for that joke to land. Uh, it was just so bad. It didn't even like creep into my, my mind very quickly. Um, yeah, and the original jawbone was from one of the great old ones who are apparently like physically bigger than Roland or, you know, what we would consider the average size human being. So that jawbone was even larger. <laughs> I don't know if it was like twice as big or one and a half times as big, whatever, but still it's like, yeah, that's not fitting in a back pocket. Well, maybe we're thinking about this wrong. Maybe, maybe Roland doesn't wear jeans. Maybe he's wearing like a pair of cargo pants. He's got lots bigger pockets to, yeah. to store stuff in. <laughs> <laughs> he's got some chinos. <laughs> so uh, we also get, and you and I noticed this sort of late in our reading of this book, but... Um, Two sets of Phil Hale illustrations. I've got uh, one of the plume printings from early or late 1980s, and it's a much different style of drawing than the one that's in your more recent collection. And it looks as yeah. if uh, Mr. Hale did some new drawings for the newer edition. Yeah. I wouldn't like be so surprised by it if it were a different artist. You know, it's like, oh, okay, new publication will hire a new artist, and of course, the new artist will do all new artwork. But they hired the same artist. They are they got Phil Hale. He said, "Do it all again." Yeah, and probably didn't turn down the paycheck. That's for sure. <laughs> no, 
And it's interesting because the images are very similar. So they're sort of the same set of drawings. Um, right. For the most part, you can match them up one to one. It's just, I think all the ones in the more recent edition are much more thematically connected, same sort of color scheme and, and design work on it. Um, yeah, there's a they're bit generally more... darker, there's sharper lines and more streaky in style. It's like the drawings are almost trying to move away from you or, or, or escape your, your gaze. Uh, it, it creates this element of discomfort just looking at them, which is interesting. Like the, like the, there's a drawing of Roland stomping on the lobstrosity with his bare foot. And in one of them, in the original Phil Hell drawing, it looks almost like something closer to comic book colors. It's a bright sunny day. But in the, the new Phil Hell one, it's like the lobstrosity is exploding and everything is shades of gray and it's dark and it, it feels like it's night. And I think there's even more rage apparent in his, hmm. in the movement of Roland's foot. Um, I, I don't know that one is better than the other, but it definitely... Maybe he was just in a different place. Yeah. And that's how it came through. Or maybe it, he was just annoyed that he had to do all these things over again. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm no artist or art critic, but, you know, I do think it's worth looking at the different pictures and illustrations and, and, and taking a look at them if you get the chance. I am very disturbed, and I think I've showed you before by the last uh, illustration in the book. It's a grinning Roland, and he looks evil he's got a little bit of blood coming down uh his forehead and the image is cut off it's like from the the bottom of his eyes down you can't even see his eyes right uh you could barely see his eyes but they're very much grayed out like you there's a shadow over them and he, there's no color to the eyes mm. this will make sense to people who've read neil gaiman's sandman but the grin reminds me of the corinthian which is one of the uh horrible creatures in in the in in the Sandman that's always creeped me out. So when I get to the final page of this book and I read that, it, that Phil Hill illustration uh, throws me for a loop. I also wanted to point out, and I don't think we've discussed this on the podcast before, one of our Twitter followers pointed out um, he's reading a British edition of the drawing of the three. And on the cover of that one, um, illustrations by somebody other than Phil Hale, there are actually four people on the cover. Um, and yeah. it's, it's very clear that Roland is one. And Odetta is one, and Eddie is one, but the fourth character, it's very odd, and it's not clear who that is meant to represent. It could be Jake, it could be a woman, but none of it seems to make sense in reading the book who that could possibly be on the beach. So Yeah, that, that fourth person is drawn, it's like physically the smallest person, in like because each person is sort of uh, dwindling to the background, so there's less detail and longish hair but no facial hair so it's like maybe it's a young man maybe it's a woman maybe it's you know yeah it's very vague yeah i think it's henry that's my theory <laughs> oh there there you go there you go <laughs> um we get a couple of uh tv tropes you wanted to discuss jay in this book yeah i thought there were some fun things uh on tvtropes.com they list common TV tropes, but they if you've ever been to the site, they'll link common tropes to specific works, whether it's a TV show, a movie, or, an, or a book. And uh, for this book, a couple of the things that they list was like, one of the tropes is that writers can't do math. <laughs> and what they're referring to is that the trope is that, you know, dates don't add up in a book or a movie. Um, 
it's like nobody ever in the editing process or something like that just got out the calculator and the calendar and said, does this make sense? And sure, this might veer into the territory of the world has moved on, et cetera, et cetera. But when Roland goes back in time or when he goes through one door, he's at one year. And then we like when he we first meet Odetta, we find out that it's a, a specific year and that um, she lost her legs like, you know, five years prior to that. But then when we talk about her again, it's like a different specific year, but it's like not the right number of years since she lost her legs. And so it's like, you know, no, like these things just keep not adding up all the time. And it's not just that. It happens throughout the book through a lot of these characters, like when they are in New York and when they're in Roland's world or different points of time in New York and relative times. Just they just don't add up right, and <laughs> so that's like a common trope, and that's one that they listed. Another one was um, they called it as long as it sounds foreign, and this I loved <laughs> because it lined right up with all of my complaints about the fake Italian. Uh, their idea was that if you want to have somebody sound exotic or or just different, just have them speak a foreign language, but make it gibberish. It doesn't matter <laughs> as long as it sounds foreign, right? And they specifically called out the quote unquote Italian that Balazar and his goons spoke in Eddie's chapter or Eddie's section of the book. So that's a lot easier to get away with on TV to do the as long as it sounds foreign, you know, yeah. because it just sort of goes in, put one person's ear and out the other, and there's no way of checking it unless, you know, you have closed captions on or you're rewinding and, and trying to do it. But when you have it written down in the book, it's a lot easier to check. I did see somebody just, uh, talk about that recently either on Twitter or on a message board where they said, hey, does anybody have any idea what Balazar saying? I put it through Google Translate and I didn't get anything back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't say anything. <laughs> and there was a third one. They called it the alas, poor Yurik moment. <laughs> That's, of course, uh, an allusion to Hamlet when Hamlet holds up the skull of Yurik and goes on his most famous, uh, is it soliloquy? Yes, that is correct. Yes. His most famous soliloquy, and uh, and of course that linked to when Eddie holds the severed head of his beloved brother Henry and mourns his passing. That was a bridge too far for me. I can't yeah. imagine sort of lifting up a recently decapitated head and bleeding uh, out on me. beloved well, brother. Well, and especially or not. who it was, you know, yeah. like uh, Jeremy I, or Christopher, if you're listening to this, I don't think I would hold your beheaded head, brother. Bro, sorry. I wonder how I would react to that as well. I love my brother very, very much, and yeah. Oh, I thought I thought you were talking about if you had to hold my one of my brother's heads. I would. Oh, yeah, I don't. Him. I don't know them. I, I would <laughs> gladly hold your brother's heads. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> All right. So um, we talked a little bit about this at the end of the Gunslinger, but um, I just wanted to get into a, some of the critical reviews of this book. It does a lot better than The Gunslinger does. Um, Which is no surprise. Yeah, no surprise. Fantasy Book Review gave it a 9.9 .9 out of 10. Wow. Yeah. Goodreads currently has a 4.2 out of 5 amongst its readers. Library Thing, 4.09 out of 5 amongst its readers. And then the Amazon reviews are 4.6 stars out of 5. So um, those are some generally positive reviews. I think we've said before. A lot of that self-selection, you know, you're more likely to write a positive review on one of those sites than not. But still, you know, those were definitely higher than the 
Gunslinger, and then Kirkus, who you might remember, we read a little bit of their review at the time, and they did not like the Gunslinger. They were much higher on the drawing of the three, and I'm just going to read a little bit about this, and you can see what they say about the Gunslinger. Readers who slog downcast through the murky first installment will find here a brighter, friskier, and much more involving read as Roland the Gunslinger takes his quest for the Dark Tower into our world in time. They say this is, quote, Prime King, very suspenseful and often quite funny during Roland's Stranger in a Strange Land forays into Gotham with psychologically dense characters, reams of virtuoso horror writing, and little of the sophomoric portentousness of the early volume. In an afterward, King previews volumes three and four, an epic in the making, and if the quality of this one sustains, a series to be savored as it grows. So uh, this reviewer was much higher on this book, as you can see. Um, and they did mention the afterward, which we didn't talk about, Jay, but yeah. in my book, writing in late 1986, uh, Stephen King starts to hint at what's to come. You, you'll remember in the first book, he was very vague about I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I, you know, it's a it's a much longer work, but I don't know if this is going to be successful and if I'll write it or what I'll do. And this one, he knows it's going to be six or seven books. He knows the third one's going to be called The Wastelands, and he knows the fourth is going to be Wizard in Glass, which is going to be sort of a prequel to the current adventures. Mm -hmm. And so he still realizes that there are many questions unanswered, and the story's climax is far in the future, but I feel it's a much more complete volume than the first, and the tower is closer. So uh, King started to whet the appetite of his readers with promises of at least two more books to come that he knows of. There's a direct reflection there where he says, this is a much more complete story. <laughs> yes. And at the end of The Gunslinger in his afterword, he said, this is almost a complete story. <laughs> yes. So he's like... Yeah, I I know. I can't I can't really call this a complete story all on its own. <laughs> and the readers didn't have to wait quite as long from this book to the uh, Wastelands, which we'll be discussing next. I would say that that also is uh, in agreement with a lot of people's advice to newcomers to this series to start with book two. Because yeah. it's it's a fun read. It's it's not difficult to get from you know chapter to chapter. And once you get through that and you kind of know Roland a little bit and you see where some of the things he's gotten up to, then just flip back and read book one as a prequel. And I think you might enjoy it a lot more because you know what this guy's all about. And now you get to see him before he lost some fingers and <laughs> it still bothers me. Yes. Well, that's a good segue, Jay, because we had asked for some listener feedback um, on the first two books and we did have a few people uh, reach out to us. And one of them was uh, Sarah E., who stated the exact same thing that you did, that she agrees that perhaps starting with the drawing of the three might be a better way of getting into the books because it is a smoother read than than going into the Gunslinger. Her favorite yep. character is Eddie, and she is a big fan of our podcast. So Sarah, we thank you for listening to us. Yes. We also had another email from John E. Um, he had read the series several times, and he wanted to let us know that he doesn't recall that there's any explanation for the directional screw-ups that we keep seem to, we seem to keep pointing out. He thinks it's potentially just an error. Um, I think you and I have started to land on the fact that it's more than just an error that King's doing it intentionally here. Uh, yeah. I guess we're just going to have to look to see if there's more hints to come in the future books. Another one of our listeners recently put something on, I think it may have been Facebook, and she alluded to the fact that 
Roland's world is like a shattered mirror. Hmm. And I thought that was a wonderful way of putting this. And if you overlay that imagery on their experience going up the coast from door to door to door, if you're standing on one piece of broken mirror, maybe, you know, you're facing north and east is to the right and west is to the left. And then you take a step and you're on another piece of broken mirror. Suddenly, east and west have reversed, but you're still walking in the same direction. And I thought that was a really great way of uh, thinking about that. So sorry, I forgot exactly who uh, put that out there. But um, if that was you, send us uh, another comment, remind us who you were, and we'll, we'll acknowledge you on the next show. Yeah, there you go. And then we had another email from As As, I think. Um, and this person wanted to uh, recommend Eyes of the Dragon, which is something that we had mentioned uh, we were doing a giveaway and said that Eyes of the Dragon was this person's, one of their favorite books. Um, it's been a long, long time since I read Eyes of the Dragon, but I know that there are some direct connections to uh, Randall Flagg in that one and probably some Dark mm -hmm. Tower connections as well. And this person would love to see King write a sequel and is looking forward to the Dark Tower movie or movies, as are we all as as so uh more to come on that i'm sure in the coming weeks and months so just a reminder the reason we had asked for feedback was because in summer of 2017 suntop editions is publishing the eyes of the dragon art portfolio with illustrations by the original artist david paladini now that's an italian name yeah david paladini so look for uh the eyes of the dragon art portfolio i've seen some of the art and it looks great and by the way um we are always uh, eager to get some of your feedback via social media or email, so we always want to hear from you guys, so don't be shy. Yeah, we love interacting with the fans, and reach out to us Twitter or Facebook, and we'll respond to you um, as best we can. We work full-time jobs, but we do make a point of answering our uh, constant listeners. So that brings us to the end of the Drawing of the Three. I think thumbs up for me. What about you, Jay? Yeah, thumbs up for me, too. Great. I am looking forward to getting into the wastelands and uh, just sort of so you have an idea of what we're doing with the wastelands. It's broken up into six chapters. They're a little bit longer than some of the chapters that we've done in the past, but rather than try to divvy those up, we're going to just take them as six pieces of the, of the whole and, and do it that way. So we will be discussing Bear and Bone which is about 85 pages in my edition. So um, a lot there, but I've started reading and it moves along pretty quickly. So I don't think anyone will have any trouble getting through that first section and, and discussing that with us on our next episode. What are your thoughts, Jay? I would agree. It, it, uh, it is very much like book two in that it moves very quickly. Once you get past the first couple of pages, you're going to just realize that you're going to look up and you're going to be most of the way through that section before you know it. Great. Well, we look forward to seeing all of you on the other side. Thank you for listening for our discussion of the drawing of the three. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. A uh, reminder, you can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at Two Guys Dark Tower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, we will begin book three of the Dark Tower, The Wastelands, covering the first chapter, Bear and Bone. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. 
Thanks for listening.